Welcome to the well here at STSA. Today is our fourth and last talk of our series, Did Jesus Really Say This? We've been going through difficult sayings of Jesus, uh, sayings that are holding up to higher standards, standards that seem impossible. And our attitude has been coming to these sayings with an attitude of obedience, not an attitude of head knowledge or philosophy. Today's difficult saying is a quite a memorable one. It's actually very famous. It's one of those things where you hear it once, you never forget it. Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now imagine a needle, imagine a camel, it would take some mind twisting to imagine the needle going through, to imagine the camel going through the eye of the needle. Not even Disney could have thought of something like that. After all, Aladdin's genie coming out of the lamp is an order of magnitude less fanciful than the camel going through the needle. So, needless to say, it's quite memorable. Now, I know, some of you out there are saying, hold on, the needle was not really a needle, or the camel was not really a camel. Well, there are a few theories out there. Uh, one theory says that the eye of a needle was not reference to a real needle, but to an opening or a gate in the walls of Jerusalem. So like all ancient cities, Jerusalem was surrounded with a big wall, had a gate, and then it's thought that there was a side opening or a side gate that was referred to as the eye of a needle. Um, so some would think that that opening was too small to fit a camel. And in that sense, the sort of the meaning of the analogy still preserved, it's still impossible for the camel to go through the eye of the needle. Others say, well, it was a gate that was narrow. You can get a camel through it, but it's difficult. Like you have to take everything off the camel, like shove the camel through to get it through. In that sense, it's very difficult for the camel to go through the eye of a needle, but not necessarily impossible. Now, others would, even, would say that actually the camel is not really a camel. It was a transcription or a translation error because the word for camel in Greek is camelon, which apparently sounds and looks a lot like camelon, which the word for a rope. So perhaps Jesus was saying it is uh, easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle. Now that's still impossible, you just lose out on all the exaggeration and the humor of the verse. I actually kind of like the plain old meaning of it. A real camel going through a real needle. And there is some evidence out there that such hyperboles and idioms were used in the Middle East around that time. Uh, so perhaps that's actually what Jesus really said. Now, you can pick whatever theory you want, you can believe whichever one you, you prefer, but at the end of the day, the intent of what Jesus was trying to say is very clear and is unquestionable. He says, Assuredly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he emphasizes by giving the analogy. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And this is a difficult saying. Now I know. You may be thinking to yourself, I'm not rich. 
As a matter of fact, my boss is rich and I don't quite like him, so I'm actually totally cool with that verse. But all joking aside, this is a difficult verse for you and for me. If you look at a chart of the GDP per, per capita, which is sort of uh, a representation of the income, uh, the average income for each country, and you look at the countries at the top of that chart, now chances are most of you listening live in one of those countries at the top of the chart. And you can see the huge difference between those countries and the countries that are at the bottom of the chart. And even if you happen to be hearing or listening to this from one of the countries at the bottom of the chart, the, the fact that you have a good enough internet connection and have language skill to uh, understand uh, and speak another language, English in this case, probably means that you're much better off than most of your countrymen. So, at least by global standards, most of us are rich. But not just by the global standards. If you look at the same chart, but now we look at all the years since 1 AD till the year uh, 2016, you'll find that most people through the past 2000 years lived in far more poverty than us. It's really in the past two to three hundred years that the world started getting a bit richer and really just in the past like the uh, century or half a century that it really reached that kind of uh, comfort and riches that we have today. So at least by historic standards, we are very rich. Compared to those who were actually listening to Christ when he said these words, we are very rich. Especially if you think that those who were listening were his disciples, who we know were working class fishermen. They were definitely poor. And yet they thought that this was a very difficult saying. Here's what happened. A young rich man goes to Christ and asks him a very good question. What thing shall I do to enter eternal life? Christ answers him, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, one quick observation here. The young man was asking about eternal life. Christ answers about life, unqualified life. Now, keep that in the back of your mind. So, essentially, Jesus tells him to follow the commandment. The man answers saying, well, I have kept all this from my youth. What do I still lack? Let me paint you a picture here. This man was a good guy. By all the definitions and the standards of his time, he was a good guy. He was young, he was rich, he was well-to-do, he was religious. At that time, in most ancient societies and ancient religions, and perhaps up till now, people thought that being rich means that you're blessed by God or by the gods. Being rich, you're favored by God. You're, you're blessed by God. So just by the fact of being a rich person, probably people around thought that he was a good guy. But add to that the fact that he was religious, like he had kept all the commandment from his youth in a society that really cared very much about religiosity. This guy was a good guy, like an intimidatingly good guy. You know that guy who's like smart, funny, liked by everybody, spiritual, and like just have it all together, he was that guy. 
people around Christ at the time saw him and thought of him and felt about him that he was a good guy. But when Christ saw him, he felt something very specific. He looked at him, loved him, the scripture says, and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell everything you have, and give to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. Now, if the camel verse was a difficult one, here is one that's far more difficult. The man goes away sorrowful, his face downcast. The Bible explains the reason. He had many possessions. It was in this context that Christ turns to his disciples and says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the disciples, again, who were mostly working class fishermen, poor people, heard what Christ said and they were in utter shock. Who then can be saved? They wondered. If this guy, the poster child of a good guy, is not going to be saved, who can be saved? If the rich, the blessed by God, are not going to be saved, who will be saved? Irrespective of what you think of your financial situation, you at least have to grant me this. This is a difficult saying. And if you're still not convinced that it's a difficult saying, well, let me set the bar as high as Christ set it. I'll just tell you one more thing. Go your way, sell everything you have, and give. Now, for the rest of you who are still here, let's grapple with this saying of Jesus a bit more. Here's the first question that we want to think of. Does God want to make our life difficult? Like this whole series have been about like difficult sayings of Jesus. Like he tells us to love our enemy. And then he tells us to uh, not be anxious for anything. And then he tells us to deny ourselves. And now a good, young, rich guy goes to ask him about eternal life and he tells him to sell everything. Does God just want to make our life difficult? Well, certainly not. And if you've been following this series with us, you know that's actually exactly the opposite. God wants to bless us. God wants to give us his abundance. So let me t take just two minutes to paint you a picture of what God has in mind for you. Here we go. The Lord watches over you. He will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. This is what God does for those he loves. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desire of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed and restores them from their bed of illness. This is what God does because this is who God is, a father for the fatherless and a defender of widows. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. But this is only the beginning. 
He will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus and is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And more than just your needs, he will give you the desires of your heart because he's got a great plan for you, a plan to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And this is simply because he has pleasure in the prosperity of his servants. Needless to say, God is not trying to make your life difficult. God wants to bless you. God wants, to, wants you to live in his abundance. He wants to give you life, unqualified life. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. But here is the problem. God cannot give us life if we act like we already have it. You cannot fill a cup that's already full. You cannot build a skyscraper on the foundations of an old single-story house. And this is the very first key idea that I want to leave you with. Trusting in riches deprives us from God's abundance. Trusting in riches deprives us from God's abundance. And you can remove the word riches and then put whatever you want to put in there. Money, possessions, social status, pleasure, whatever. Jesus warns, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. He warns us over and over again. In the parable of the sower, we hear about the seeds that fell on, among the thorns, and as soon as they grew, they were choked by the thorns. And Christ explains, now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. The Bible is not so kind to those who trust in riches. As a matter of fact, do you know what the Bible calls such a person? A rich guy suddenly got much richer and thought to himself, I'm going to put my riches in like very safe investments. I'm going to sit back, eat and drink and be merry. God comes to him and calls him fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? The Bible just called the rich guy a fool. But I'm afraid that's not the worst. Um, the Bible actually uses very harsh language um, against people who put their trust, as, trust in riches. And those who desire riches. I hesitate to share these verses. Um, I don't want to turn you off. And you may be thinking that maybe I have some sort of bitterness against rich people, or maybe I harbor some sort of uh, radical leftist agenda. I can assure you that's not true. But these verses are in the Bible, and we're talking about difficult sayings of Jesus. So honesty dictates that we put them out there and deal with them. 
Yeah, they may be difficult. Yeah, I may be even a bit offended by, th- by some of them. But let's at least see why God is saying them. And here is the biggest offender. This is from St. James. Listen to this. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moth has eaten your, clo- your cloths. Your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned the murderer, the innocent one who was not opposing you. And it just ends there, abruptly. What an uplifting message for a Sunday morning, isn't it? Now listen to what St. Paul says. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I know they sound very harsh, but here's the reality. Riches can be deceitful, and trusting and seeking after them can be dangerous. So I already told you that trusting in riches deprives us from God's abundance. The second thought I want to leave you with is that trusting in riches disengages our heart from God and from our neighbor. And I'm using the word neighbor here in the biblical sense of the word. It may be the guy down the street, it may be the guy in the other part of town, or perhaps the guy in the other part of the world. And again, you can move, remove the word riches and put whatever you want to put in there. Possessions, money, social status, uh, pleasures, you name it. Riches and the desire of richness can make our hearts callous. And we know that. That's ancient wisdom. We've always heard it. Solomon the wise, thousands of years ago, pleaded with God saying, two things I ask from you. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and dishonor the name of my God. Okay, I know I may be pushing my luck here. Uh, You may be getting skeptical of my intentions or maybe you're getting straight out angry with me. But just give me a few minutes here. Be patient with me. This next part is, again, a little bit painful, but then it's going to get better, I promise. In the past 10 years, there have been a number of social science experiments about the relationship of uh, wealth and social status with behavior. And let me just remind you, I started by kind of making the argument that we are all rich uh, in one sense, at least in using global standards or historical standards, the majority of us here are riches, are rich, including me and you. So unfortunately, the results are not very flattering 
to you, my fellow rich people. In a series of studies out of UC Berkeley, researchers have found that there was a relationship between social status or social class and unethical behavior. I know, that sounds surprising, and I was taken back by that too. In one of those experiments, what they did was they simply uh, observed a crosswalk and saw which cars stopped for the pedestrians crossing, which is the law, uh, and which cars did not. And they found a strong correlation that the more expensive cars broke the law and did not stop for pedestrians. And they did a number of few other experiments that showed similar patterns. The same group did another number of experiments that showed that people from the higher social classes were actually less generous and less giving with their money compared to people from lower social classes. In one uh, experiment, they asked people like, how much of your salary should be uh, donated? And people from the lower socioeconomic status uh, indicated a higher percentage of the salary compared to people from the higher socioeconomic status. Now, here's the interesting thing. They manipulated both groups to think of themselves in a higher, to be in a higher social class. And they do that by having them compare themselves with uh, other people. And they verified that the people were actually sort of effectively manipulated to think of themselves as such. And then they asked them the question again. And both groups reported smaller percentages of the salary that should be donated after they've been manipulated to think of themselves as a higher class. Now, there was an important observation in these studies, though. And that, that observation was when you um, introduce the idea of compassion to those in the higher social uh, class by having them watch like a short video, like a 30-second video or something like that, that just reminds them about being compassionate, their behavior changed. And actually, they become as giving and as generous as the lower social uh, statuses. Another group of researchers in the University, University of uh, Minnesota uh, did a number of experiments where they did something called priming uh, with money. Essentially, uh, re like the subjects would be sitting in a lab waiting to be tested. They don't know exactly what they're going to be tested for. And um, they would just, like next to them would be like a table that has like monopoly money or like a screen saver that has a dollar sign. Um, and then they would go through an experiment that's designed, designed to distract them. And then at the end, when they don't think they're being observed, they actually uh, do experiments to see how helpful they are to other people. And the people who were primed to think about money were actually less helpful to others than those who were not. And here, there was no question of social status. These were all people from similar social status and were randomized anyway. So just thinking about money, at least in those experiments, makes you less willing to help others. And the difference was, mo was modest. Like it wasn't a huge change, like maybe like 15% or something, decrease in helpfulness. But at the end of the day, all it, all it took was like a bill of monopoly money on a table to, to, to make that change. In one of the most interesting of these studies, 
that also came out of UC Berkeley, they would bring pairs of individuals uh, into the lab to play Monopoly. But it was a rigged game of Monopoly. They would randomize them. One of the subjects would have an unfair advantage, would have more money to start with, they would collect more money as they, as they pass go, and they would play with two dice as opposed to one dice for the other person. And then they would observe them for 15 minutes and see how they behave. And what they found was the person who had more money or who was randomized to be the rich player had the unfair advantage. After a few minutes, would start acting differently. They would start showing signs of uh, like victory and like uh, of self-confidence. They would start counting their money like in a very visible way. And then after a while, they would actually start talking rudely to the other player. They would be like, oh, I'm totally crushing this game. There's no way you can catch up with me. I can buy this whole board. And what's even more interesting, at the end of the 15 minutes, they would ask the subject, uh, and like, mind you, by then they know that the game has been rigged in their advantage. But then they would ask them at the end, uh, kind of to talk about their experience and about why they inevitably won the game. And they would answer by attributing the victory to their strategy or to what they bought or to what, or whatever decisions they made. Hearing this experiment, there was one thing I can think of, which is the warning that St. Paul gives rich people. Listen to this. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasures of good foundations for the future so that they may take hold of that which is indeed life. The warning, the instruction was not to be conceited. The Google definition for conceited is having an excessively favorable opinion of one's abilities and appearance. The etymologies, according to Google at least, comes from the word conceive, like to have a conception of something or an idea of something, and deceive. Conceit is a bad form of self-deception. Now, I'm not an expert on social science of wealth, and I cannot claim to have read all these papers and evaluated their methods and their results. Um, and honestly, I cannot even claim that the authors of these papers are not biased, but who isn't? But here's what I know. Riches can be deceptive and they can change us. At least from my own experience, I know that at times I've, you know, maybe looked down at people that I think they're kind of less, are less than me or are in a lower social uh, economic status than, uh, than myself. And I'm ashamed of that. And I also know that I've oftentimes attributed whatever success I had to my hard working when I know that there are people who work far harder than me and have not anywhere near the blessings that God has given me. The point is, riches can be dece deceiving. Um, and they can make us conceited. And that's why St. Paul warns us against that. They can harden our heart and choke what's good in us.
I think that's precisely why the Bible uses such harsh language when talking about this subject. God's trying to get our attention. If your child is crossing the street and a car is about to hit him, you're not going to go so gently try to explain to him that he should not be crossing the street. You're going to yell and scream and go yank him from his hand. And then after that, you'll give him a hug and assure him of your love for him. And thankfully, that's what God does for us too. He may yell to get our attention, but then he shows us a better way. The way to live in his abundance and not in self-deception, the way to have life and not the cheap version of life that money can buy, has to do with who we put our trust in. The problem of the young rich man is that he trusted in his possessions. At the root of the problem was trust in money. And at the root of the solution is trust in God. There is an enigmatic parable in the Bible that I'm not going to do justice to. But I think it holds a clue to the mindset that can help us avoid the deceitfulness of riches. A rich man gets report that his steward is wasting his money. So he calls him in, he tells him to give an account of his stewardship, and he tells him that he's going to be fired after that. The steward hears this and decides, try, thinks, thinks to himself, like, what, what, what should I do now? Uh, I'm going to be getting fired soon. So he thinks of an idea. He says, well, let me go talk to each of the people who owe anything to my master and reduce their debt. So you owe my master $100, I'll make it $50. That way, when I'm fired from here, at least I'll have friends to take me in. Here is the enigmatic part of the parable. The master actually applauded the steward for doing that. And what's even more enigmatic is the verse that comes after. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. It turns out that the master doesn't really care about his possessions. He doesn't even care that the steward is wasting the possessions. What he cares about is how he's wasting them. When he was wasting them, presumably on himself, the master was angry. When he was wasting them on others, the master was actually happy. In either case, the money is getting wasted. Because money has no eternal value. The NIV translation, which I just read you, calls it uh, worldly wealth. But that's kind of a bit of a tame translation. Other translations call it, calls it unrighteous mammons. In either case, the wealth is worthless to God. It's how we use it that matters to him. God doesn't need our money, but he cares very much how we use it. Here is the mindset that can help us avoid the deceitfulness of riches. Change your attitude from that of ownership rights to that of stewardship responsibilities.
change it from ownership rights to stewardship responsibilities. We think of money as our money. We made this money. We decide to do with it, with it whatever we want. It's ours. But God is challenging us to think of it as a blessing from him, something that was given for us to be stewards over, meaning to be managers over, and to be responsible for in front of him for how we use it. This parable ends with a very famous verse. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will devote, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. So at the end of the day, we have to choose who will serve, God or money. So I want to give you four tips to put that choice into action. First, practice contentment. Contentment is a great gain, St. Paul says. Here's what he says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with this we will be content. Contentment simply says that I'm happy and joyful in what God has provided for me today. I don't need the higher paying job to start being happy. I don't need the bigger house to start being happy. I don't need the luxurious car or the luxurious vacation to be happy. I'm happy and joyful today in what God is providing. And the first step to practicing contentment is to practice gratitude to be thankful for what God has already done in our lives. Now, the next tip takes that contentment even a step further. So it's not only that I don't need the luxuries to have joy, but actually it's about being a little bit cautious and even suspicious of luxuries. Don't be given to luxury. Be careful of too much luxury. It can numb up our souls. Because the whole idea of luxury is that it, you surround yourself with things that tells you it's all about you. It's all about you. And then it's very hard to think of yourself as a steward and a manager after that, when everything around you is telling you it's all about you. St. John Chrysostom talks at length about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Briefly, the parable is about two characters, a nameless rich man who lived in luxury and a beggar that lived at his gate named Lazarus. St. John talks at length about this parable and then says this about it. It, the parable, taught us by example that the most pitiable person of all is the one who lives in luxury and shares his goods with nobody. The problem with luxury is that it makes you focus on yourself. And then eventually, you believe that you're all that matters. Again, St. John Chrysostom talks about this rich man and says that his prosperity in all aspects of his life drowned his reasoning and blinded the eye of his mind and as if deprived of the sight, thereafter he went on walking without knowing where he was going. But seeing everything flowing to him as from a spring, 
he passed his time uninterrupted in pleasure. His lifestyle drowned his reasoning and blinded his eyes. That's what living in too, ex too much excess can do. It can disconnect us from even those who are around us and blind our ability to see the need around us in the world. So balance out luxuries of the common luxuries of our modern day life with some practice of self-denial. Um, you don't have to be an ascetic. You don't have to put on sackcloth or go to the desert. But maybe you can learn one or two things from those who have done that. One of the ascetic fathers explained why he didn't drink uh, wine. He explains it this way. Now we abstain from certain things, not because the things themselves are bad, but because the passions are mighty. And when they have waxed strong, they kill us. I won't belabor the point, because Father Timothy actually talked about self-denial at length last week. But look for ways to practice it. Maybe skip the gourmet coffee one day and make your coffee at home. And think of a creative way to use the extra 5 or $10 you saved, perhaps spending it on somebody who can't pay you back. Maybe skip one fancy dinner and use the time and the money to do something to bring joy to somebody else. Uh, maybe not every single vacation day have to be spent in an exotic experience or a luxurious vacation, but maybe you can just use one day to actually serve somebody else. I don't know. I mean, these are just simple, modest examples from everyday life. The point is the mindset. Now, my next tip is a very important one. Give generously. I won't be talking to you about tithe, except to say one thing. Tithe was not the only way that God wanted his people in the Old Testament to give. He had told them to give 10% of the produce of, his, of their land and uh, livestock, but that was among a whole system of giving. That included giving the first fruit, it included a lot of offerings and sacrifices, and it also included some instructions about how they should harvest their land. So when they would harvest the land, they were instructed by God not to harvest the corners or the edges of the land. And when fruits fall to the ground, they're not supposed to go back and get them. They're supposed to leave them there, for the poor and the foreigner. In a sense, when God created a system in the Old Testament, he made giving part of everyday life. It's not just an occasional once upon a time thing. In the New Testament, of course, we see in the book of Acts how people went far. They were not following the laws of the Old Testament anymore, but they went far beyond. They were giving everything to anybody who needs it and they shared things communally. a very radical obedience to the verses we read earlier. But this brings me to the question, can money buy you happiness? Well, it turns out that apparently it can, but here's how, when you spend it on others. There actually been social science experiments looking into that. They would give people like five bucks or 20 bucks at the beginning of the day, and then they would see how they've spent it, and they would ask them how happy they are at the end of the day, and it turns out that those who spend the money on others reported being happier and more joyful at the end of the day than those who didn't. And I know what you're thinking right now. Oh man, those rich people can even buy happiness? No, it doesn't work out this way, actually. It 
these same experiments worked in America and in Uganda. As a matter of fact, the authors of the experiment says this, that a survey conducted by the Gallup World Poll showed that the relationship emerged in poor and rich countries alike. Again, it held up even after controlling for individuals' income. Doesn't matter if you're poor or you're rich, you actually gain the same joy and happiness of giving um, from your, oh, like you get the same amount of joy, it doesn't matter what, how much you're giving or uh, how much you started with. Now, am I telling you this to bribe you to give? Not exactly. My point is different. I believe that we have been created in the image of God. And our God, whose image we carry, is a giving and generous God who gives to all generously and without reproach. We are therefore more like our God and more like we've been created to be when we give. And that's why we experience joy and happiness, because that's what happiness is in a nutshell. Give generously of your money, of your time, of your energy. Be engaged with the people around you. Look for opportunities. Stay in touch. That's how you avoid the deceitfulness of riches. My final tip is one that can often be neglected. Don't foster guilt. Now, some of you have no clue what I'm talking about, but some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes when we see the blessings that God has given us, and when we see how other people are much less fortunate and poor, we can feel guilt about that. And it's coming from a good place, but it may not be taking you to the right place. Guilt is useful to get your attention, but it's not a good motivation to get you to, the, to where you want to go. The problem with guilt, it's so self-focused, which kind of runs contrary to what we're trying to do, of being others-focused. So, don't let guilt be the driving factor, but rather go back to the stewardship mentality. God has given you blessings, now use them and share them with others. He gives you more, then you have more responsibility in your hand. Share more. Listen carefully to St. Paul's advice. This comes from the verse with the warning that I read you earlier. He says, Fix your hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Yeah, God's giving you things to enjoy, but don't do it in a selfish way of enjoyment. Enjoy them by sharing them with others. Don't foster guilt. Now, I have just one final plea before we conclude. It's very tempting when we talk about this subject to think of every single person in the world but yourself. It's very tempting to point at everybody else and say what they should do or what the government should do or what the United Nations should do and totally miss the point. But this is a personal message. Christ is talking to you and me today. You and I are the young rich man. And perhaps, like the young rich man, what Christ just said may sound ridiculous to us. 
But just don't do his mistake. Don't walk away. Don't go away upset. Don't go away distracted. Don't go away even excited. Stick with Christ. Listen to what he has to say. Stick around with him. When Christ looked at the young man, he loved him, the scripture says. What he cared about was not the young man's possessions. What he cared about was the, young, what was the salvation of his soul. And when the disciples in shock wondered who then can be saved, Christ responded, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. With God. Just stick around with God. Go your way, give up your trust and riches, and come and be with God. And you will, what you will find out is that in his presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Now, let us bow down our heads in prayer. Our dear Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for every condition and in every condition, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for your love for us and for your abundance for us. And we thank you for reminding us, Lord, that you are the only source of real fulfillment, Lord. We ask you, Lord, today to help us shift our trust from worldly things, from riches, from possessions, from whatever is taking our heart, and fix it entirely on you. We ask you, Lord, to soften our hearts, to see the needs around us in the world to engage with those around us and to engage more with you so that we, along with them, may live and enjoy your abundance. I pray this through intercession of St. Mary and through intercession of St. Timothy and St. Athanasius. Make us, Lord, worthy to pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, thank you everyone, and we'll see you next week at the well.